So we are going to turn in our Bibles to Acts 6 this morning. <clears throat> don't forget, don't, sorry, don't panic. I haven't forgotten communion. We're going to do that at the end. Um, <clears throat> we are continuing our series in Acts this morning. Most of you would be aware by now that um, we are taking a season to... Um, work our way through Acts, but not simply really as a study where we're just looking at the history and the culture and the personalities and the times of the early church, but we're really looking to take a deep dive into what marked the believers and the church of Jesus Christ then, and what does that reveal to us and in us and for us now? Um, And I don't know about you, but I have found some aspects of this series really comforting as I just remember how incredibly um, immense God is and that there's really nothing that we face now that hasn't, as his people, been faced in the past. Um, But I have also found it challenging and uncomfortable. And um, I... I want to lean into that. I don't know about you, but in this season, I want to lean into God's challenge and allow him to change me in the process of that. And I would encourage you to do the same. So just before we read Act 6, I'm just going to pray. Father, as we come to a time in your word, we do so with open hearts, ears open to hear, and God with a desire to not remain the same, but to be changed and transformed more and more into the likeness of your Son. So we ask, Father, that as we explore this passage together this morning, that, God, you would breathe on the words in such a way that we are aware that you are personally talking to us. Would you help us, God, and would you help me? Amen. So we're just going to read a small chunk this morning, so just verses 1 to 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should... Um, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, The names are getting harder. Nicanor and Timon. I want to say Parmesan for the next one, but it's not Parmesan. (laughs) Parmenas. Dustin says I've got food on the brain at the moment. I'm training for a half ultra marathon and I think about food a lot. Um, Anyway, these names, seven men. Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I think it's important to note that this point in the early church, we're talking about kind of being about somewhere between three to five years into the early life of the church. I feel like when we're reading a book like Acts, you can kind of feel like it's just like week and week about. But time is passing in their midst, and so most scholars think that this is about sort of four or five years in. And we've read up to this point, certainly, about external opposition. Um, And there is definitely coming up in the book of Acts much more external persecution and suffering for the believers. But in this text today, what we find are the beginnings of struggles and challenges surfacing from within the church. And everything, again, something that um, you may or may not be aware of, but everything that we've read so far in Acts is all still located within Jerusalem. And um, The growth of the church, though, has gone from being measured and reported in terms of addition, so numbers were added to them every day, to actually being referred to as multiplication. So the growth in the church is incredibly rapid. It's hard to keep up with. There are diverse groups of people who are at varying points of their maturing as followers of Jesus, and there's all the baggage that goes with that. And just as he did when he walked on the earth, Jesus drew a really wide group and varied group of people to himself. Now, at this point in the early church, these are still all people of um, a Jewish background, um, but it includes Jews who are native to Israel and also foreign Jews, which is why we get this distinction between Hellenist and Hebrew Jews. And those foreign Jews have lived in other countries but have returned to Jerusalem. And then the word proselytes, that refers to people who have converted to Judaism. So they were not born Jewish, but they have become part of the Jewish faith. And then, on top of that, they have found Jesus. So there would have been in this mix, as I've said already, very new believers, people who may even only be days old in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the apostles who had walked with Jesus and other um, disciples who had physically been around during Jesus's ministry. And so, you know, as you can imagine, when you put a group of varied ethnicity, cultural background, generations, varying maturity levels and different means, then, and you put them all together, then really there is, there's likely to be tension because they're human beings. And in a tribalism, that is where we think about them against us. You know, that's nothing new. And the church is most definitely not immune. And, um, I mean, we've read already about some of these passages early in the New Testament church, in Acts 2 and Acts 4 in particular, that describes the life of the community of believers. And it sounds idyllic, doesn't it? And, I mean, Andrew's referred to it before as the honeymoon period. I kind of think of it a bit like watching somebody's Instagram feed of a family holiday, It looks idyllic, but really the photo they've put up is that one tiny moment where everybody was prepared to stand near each other for the purposes of the photo, and it doesn't really reveal the true nature of holidaying as a family with all its, I don't want to share a room with her, 
I want the top bunk. Why aren't we having Cocoa Pops? We always have Cocoa Pops on holidays. I'm cold, I'm tired, I'm hungry. Are we there yet? And in our family, sometimes even the kids joined in on that. <laughs> this particular account, though, focuses on a group of widows. And it's perhaps important to note that this is all still with inside the body of believers. This wasn't particularly an outreach program to feed widows as an outreach to unbelievers. This is how they were meeting the needs of people within the family of faith. And so there are a few ideas floated by scholars as to why there were so many widows and they weren't keeping up with the need. Um, historically, um, Jews who they termed foreign Jews would actually often move back to Jerusalem at the end of their life um, because even if you were a foreign-born Jew, it was considered to be more blessed to die and to be buried in Jerusalem. And so they would come in their old age back to Jerusalem for that purpose. Um, some scholars suggested that because of the birth of the church, it kind of disrupted what had been already a very ancient practice within Hebrew families of them taking care of their own family and widows, and it kind of a defaulted to expecting the church to do that for them. And then there was also, I guess, some who felt that there may have been widows who had been ostracised from their family because of their choice to follow Jesus. But whatever the reason, a complaint arose. And I guess what I want you to understand about this word complaint is it wasn't some nicely worded feedback on the Widows Fund customer feedback form. You know, a nice rating out of one to five on their customer service and their presentation and how hot the food was and whether it, whether it was delivered in a timely manner. This word for complaint means smouldering discontent, murmuring, muttering, a secret displeasure, like that kind of tension you can feel when you know people are not happy, but they're not giving voice to it in any kind of constructive way. That, that's what this word means. And so although we don't get much information, what we do know is that there are these different racial factions that this murmuring somehow seems to have been fueled by kind of comparisons of she's getting more than me. Um, there's these group of diverse people in the mix, maybe even some jealousy and discrimination. And that's basically stirred up by these different people, these strangers having to be around the same table. And the actions of the apostles, as we've read, that senior leadership of the church at the time, was swift, it was decisive, and it was very practical. It's possibly easy to lose sight when you read this passage of the varied reasons as to why they might have acted so decisively. I mean, amongst the information Luke gives us, it does say that the apostles really don't want to get bogged down in the matters of grumbling and complaining and be distracted from the mission of declaring the word of God. And it's also very clear that because there's been so much multiplication in the church that it's left some of their processes and support structures ailing and that there definitely was potential for leaving real needs unmet. So it's not saying there weren't real needs that needed to be addressed. 
But I guess what I want to explore with you this morning is that I believe this little passage of scripture has a lot more to teach us than how to better divide up the tasks in church life. Um, We've read repeatedly um, in our study in Acts so far how powerfully God was moving in and through the believers, that there had been an increase in boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel even in the face of opposition and persecution, that awe and wonder and fear of the Lord marked the believers of this time, that signs and wonders and miracles um, were constantly declaring and underlining God's glory and his power and that there was unprecedented growth, thousands of people at a time being saved and set free from the bondage of their sin. And in the middle of all that God is doing springs up murmuring, muttering and smouldering discontent within the church. I don't think that it's overstating it to say that the apostles knew that this murmuring, this discontent, this under-the-surface undercurrent had the potential to hinder the move of the Spirit and the spread of the gospel just simply due to that division and that discontent that was going on in their midst. And it wasn't just simply because they were being distracted from the job of devoting themselves to prayer and the word, although that was obviously a part of it. I think it's really important for us to remember that, yes, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And he desires to make his manifest presence known in our midst and to a broken and hurting world through his body. But what if our silent mutterings and smouldering discontent can hinder the purposes of God? This really should be sobering to us. What happens when the effectiveness of the gospel is challenged when we can't even sit down at the same table with each other in our differences as disciples of Jesus? Jesus has called us to be much more than a community of people who are like a club of like-minded religious people. Like we're not, we're not just simply an assembly of people who've all been saved. We're the family of God and we are to be characterised by the self-giving love of Jesus himself towards one another. And that includes pursuing the active good for each other. This passage of scripture that I'm about to read in Philippians has come up um, a bit recently for me in all sorts of different ways. But again, this time I was surprised to find um, the same word as used in Acts. It's Philippians 2 verse 14 to 16. It says this, Do all things without grumbling. That's that same word for murmuring in Acts. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Can we shine like lights in the world when we are grumbling, murmuring and muttering to each other? And I'm talking as much to myself this morning. 
Our lives together are meant to be on display as a glimpse of what humanity looks like under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And not, that doesn't look like tribe against tribe and grumble against grumble. So what is fascinating to me this morning, and I guess that's where I want to focus our attention, is in this account of Acts, how did the apostles deal with this murmuring discontent? What did they do? There were no lectures or direct correctional teaching recorded in this instance, although later in the New Testament there are certainly points at which there was correction brought in this area to the church. But in this instance, they didn't sit them down and lecture them. Instead, they led with actions that were practical, simple, and divinely wise. So they appointed these seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, to serve and wait tables. They countered this murmuring with what I'm going to call the holy resistance of hospitality. I think it's pure genius and definitely confirms what many of us already know, that being sat down and served a good cup of coffee fixes lots of things. But biblically speaking, and from a biblical understanding, hospitality is a little bit broader than just cooking somebody a meal or making them a cup of coffee, although food was very frequently involved. This Greek word for hospitality is philoxenos. I'm not very good at my Greek pronunciation, but let me break it down for you because that's the point rather than my ability to say it. Philo, which means love affection, brotherly love, and xenos, which is the root word for stranger. So hospitality in its basic form means literally to love a stranger, love of the one who is different to us. And it is in complete contrast and in fact in resistance to xenophobia, which is the fear, mistrust, and even hate of the stranger. So Jesus modelled, didn't he, throughout his ministry, sitting at the table with people to eat. People who were unlike himself. People that everybody else around him thought he should not be at the table with. Even amongst his own band of brothers, his 12 disciples, he had this uncanny ability to turn enemies into guests and guests into family. And that was often simply done by sitting down to a meal with them. When you sit down at the table with people who don't think like you, they don't look like you, and they don't act like you, except that you all follow Jesus, this is an act of holy resistance. And it shouldn't be underestimated what was going on here in the book of Acts wasn't ordinary, it was actually supernatural. Hospitality is welcoming people who are not like us to our table as a fellowship of believers. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 6 to 9 says this. Above all, actually, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers 
a multitude of sins. And how are we to do that? Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Same word as used in Acts. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then Romans 12, we have this amazing passage of scripture demonstrating what it's to look like for us to live together as in the life of believers. And Paul says this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And that word seek there, it's a strong word. It doesn't just, it, it, it's, it's, it's not a weak word, it's a strong word. It means to be eager, to run after, to pursue. And in some contexts, it even has a hint of violence about it, although I am not advocating violent hospitality, although I'm not quite sure what that means. Sit down, I'm going to give you a cup of coffee. Paul goes on in this chapter um, 12. He says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This obviously became increasingly difficult as the early church grew and more varied people were added to their numbers, even more so when the the Gentiles and pagan worshippers came in um, and were saved. And we do read repeatedly through the New Testament writings of the apostles and the leaders needing to deal with factions and murmuring and strife amongst the believers. And you will find when you look that hospitality was continued to be given a place of importance throughout the early church, not just as a way of distributing food to the needy, but as a way to protect the bond of peace in the body of Christ and to protect the work of God in their midst. So as I close today, I just want to highlight two areas so that we can pull this into our life. What does this look like? I hope it does look like increased hospitality in our midst. But what, what flows from that hospitality? What should we be looking to be characterised by as the church of the Lord Jesus? And how this love of strangers and love of the one who is different to us, how is that reflected? And so number one, we are to be characterised by being a church of disciples. When I was looking at this passage, I was really interested to find that this is the first time the word disciples appears in the book of Acts. It's in this passage. Up until now, they were all called believers. But they, start, they make that shift and they start calling the believers disciples. And that word disciple denotes pupil, one who is a learner, one who is teachable, someone who has the undertaken the lifelong process and pursuit of growing in and living in the ways of Jesus to become more like him. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that the maturity and the wisdom of the seven men who were chosen to wait tables was in direct contrast to the immaturity of the murmurers. 
and that the apostles were recognising in this process that there was a need within the growing church to establish a way of coming alongside new disciples to serve them, to teach them, to model for them what does it look like to lead a spirit-led life with maturity, with a good reputation, with good character and godly wisdom in the middle of the ordinariness of life. And to be perfectly honest, we all need that. And so in the Church of Disciples, a Church of Disciples, recognises that healthy family is made up of generations gathered round the table together in order for us all to grow and mature in the ways of Jesus. And so a question that's worth asking yourself this morning is, where are you positioned in this practice of hospitality discipleship? Do you have people that you've invited into your life who are more mature than you, who um, can come alongside you and model a spirit-led, wise life? And then conversely, do you have younger people around you, people younger in inverted commas potentially, people who are younger in their faith and walk with Jesus, who you come alongside in hospitality to encourage and to bring discipleship to? And then finally, number two, we are to be characterised as a church that has the grit to hang in there in the day-to-day life together as a family. In my immediate family, Justin and I have always attempted to make family dinner a priority with our four girls while they were growing up. It was not always pretty. It was hard work. There were way, definitely, times where it would have been much easier to feed them their dinner and sit down for a nice civilised adult dinner ourselves. It was frustrating, it was messy, but it was so worth the investment at this end of our parenting to see the dividends that that's paid. Many of our funniest moments, our best points of reminiscing and laughing together have been around the dinner table. And I just share that as as an illustration You know, in our hyper-individualistic society, it is really tempting to opt out of family dinners, out of community, out of being part of family, especially when that means chores, responsibilities and the prospect of discipline. But that's what we're called to as the family of believers, as the family of God. It's hard work to live in family, isn't it? Yes. Amen. We are all so different. You're not like me. I'm not like you. But to have the grit in the day-to-day to do life with each other, we have to be intentional to guard our connections, to cut off murmuring and grumbling at its root, to give to forgive one another quickly, to prefer one another, to lay down our own preferences for things. We do have... God is sovereign, yes... And I believe he has incredible things for us. But for our part, our response is that we do have a responsibility to guard and protect our relationships with each other. And one way we can do that is through the deliberate practice of hospitality, to come around the table together as a holy act of resistance. Finally, in just concluding, we read in verse 7, I just want to really leave this as a question to you, but we, 
We read in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of believers multiplied. And it's, of course, way too simplistic to suggest that that was all because of a food services program. It was not, of course. But what if as people looked in from the outside and saw the way that they were working out their salvation together and wrestling to maintain unity, that that was attractive? What if our radical hospitality towards one another, in spite of our differences, was sufficiently countercultural that we would shine like lights for Jesus? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to invite the worship team back up because what we're actually going to do is we are going to gather around the Lord's table this morning together. This was the most radical, ultimate act of hospitality there ever was, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and invited us to his table, that he turned us from enemies lost in the brokenness of our sin and in rebellion to him and brought us, covered by his blood, into family. And so this is another act of holy resistance this morning to take communion together. You know, we stand here as a body of believers, as family, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. We get to love one another with all of our imperfections and muddly mess because Christ first loved us. And I do want to say this morning that you might be here or tuning in online and you've never accepted the invitation from Jesus to sit at his table. Through his death and through his resurrection, he made a way for you to come home to the Father, to be called family, to be called his children. And I guess my encouragement to you this morning is that there is a place set at his table for you and that there is absolutely nothing in your life that isn't paid for and covered by his complete provision for you. Maybe this morning you're ready to accept that invitation. Or maybe you have questions. If you read the Gospels, which is just the four books that account for Jesus' life on earth, you will find that he sat down at the table many times with people who had questions, who had hard questions. He is not put off by your questions. And so wherever you are at this morning, whether you are ready to run to the table and sit down with Jesus and say, yes, I want to be family, or whether you just want to come to Jesus and start asking some questions, to be a seeker, to find out more about this Jesus, then I would encourage you to not leave here today without talking to someone to me, to our prayer team, to one of the other pastors, if you're online, that you would send us a message and reach out.
But this morning, we're going to take communion together as family, seated around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ in recognition of his radical hospitality towards us, his love of the stranger that he made for a way for us to come home. So if you have communion, your little pot things with you here this morning, I just want to pray as we prepare our hearts before him and then we will eat and drink together in recognition of our amazing Jesus. So Father, we come to you this morning. We know that your arms are open wide to us, that you have prepared a table for us, that you have made a way to bring us from being enemies as a result of our sin and rebellion against you, that you have covered that by your blood, that we might be called family, that we might have peace with our Father. as we take communion this morning we prepare our hearts before you we recognise that in this week that has been we will have fallen short in our thoughts, our words and our actions and we repent of these before you God and just take time for a moment to examine our hearts before you we ask your forgiveness we receive your forgiveness which is so willingly given to us and we take and eat this morning in remembrance of you glad that we could be together this morning in one place. I'd like to invite the prayer teams up now. If you have needs, this is what family does. We get to pray for one another. We have high value for making sure that people can receive personal prayer every Sunday. So um, if you need prayer this morning, please um, avail yourself of that. You're welcome to come up, prayer team. If you would uh, like to have a conversation about any of the things shared this morning, then please come and find me. God bless you. I trust that you have a fantastic week and uh, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.